This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, August 27th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. More than a decade after the housing crash that crippled financial markets, what rules govern housing finance? And are those rules helping to set the stage for another housing crash? Cato's Diego Zuluaga comments. Since the housing collapse in 2008, uh, a lot of people have tried to really make sense of it. And, and I think, to my knowledge, there isn't really a... A clear-cut, generally accepted theory about what happened. In general, what do you view as essentially the causes of the financial collapse in 2008? Well, that's, of course, a very big subject, and people will talk about uh, potentially the impact of monetary policy and the fact that interest rates were too low for too long. They will talk about the uh, inadequacy of supervision of banks, not necessarily that there was too little regulation, but that there was a lot of regulation that wasn't effective and in fact may have actively uh, harmed things as far as financial stability was concerned. But if we restrict the analysis to the housing market and mortgage markets in the United States, which it is universally acknowledged, regardless of what interpretation one makes, played a major role in the run-up to the crisis, I think a very important factor is something called the affordable housing goals. And these were politically set targets that basically mandated for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are these enormous enterprises that buy mortgages from banks and other lenders, for them to um, have a percentage of those loans that they bought uh, go to low-income, underserved, and uh, other communities that didn't necessarily have the means to um, access a, a traditional mortgage loan. And so what that translated to was what they called flexible standards, that is relaxing underwriting standards to meet those affordable housing goals. Now, the intentions, um, I have no doubt, were uh, benevolent in in setting those targets. I think the idea was to get more people into home ownership because it's perceived that home ownership creates economic stability and financial security. But in fact, the, consequen- the consequence was that, yes, in the short term, we raised the home ownership rate to about 60 68, 69% from about 63, 64%. But those people couldn't, simply couldn't um, afford to pay back their loans when, I mean, when the economy turned, but also many of them in the first place. So, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, trying to understand why it is that we found ourselves with a very rapid and accelerating credit boom in the run-up to 2008 in the housing market, and suddenly with escalating foreclosures and a lot of financial distress, I think we have to go back to those affordable housing goals that were first instituted in the early 1990s and were steadily expanded into 2004 and 2005. If you look at, uh, for example, housing starts uh, in the United States, the the the, uh, the me- measure of when home construction uh, begins, it peaked right in the middle of 2006, and then collapsed. That's and right. Is uh, back back to essentially nowhere near where it was in the middle of the 2000s. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I I think it's also noticeable that if you look at the distribution of uh, new starts and where prices went up the most, of course, people will point you now to the fact that the house price index, that is the summary measure that looks at house prices all across the United States, is basically at the levels it was at. It perhaps in in many places has even surpassed uh, the peak set in 2006, 2007. But of course, the geographic distribution of those increases is very different. Uh, In During the credit boom that preceded the crisis, 
years, what you had was uh, enormous increases in places like Florida, Nevada, Arizona, uh, places where the availability of credit encouraged uh, builders to increase supply tremendously. And really, the new purchases were driven by easy access to credit, whereas um, I would wager that much of the recent escalation in prices we've seen is one, the consequence of declining interest rates, which mean that home values go up. But then secondly, the um, prevalence of supply restrictions in the high demand places where people really want to live and to move. That is California, um, parts of New England, uh, parts of, of course, you know, Washington DC would be part of this, but also Chicago, a lot of the thriving metropolitan areas uh, in the United States. Uh, and, and those are responsible for a lot of the price increases since. So the distribution is different. But as you say, the sort of, um, housing boom we saw before the financial crisis um, is, is, was something unprecedented at the time, and it remains unprecedented today. So one of the problems that uh, contributed to the financial crisis was um, the, the idea that uh, Fannie and Freddie would be, would be purchasing uh, mortgages at a faster rate than uh, was appropriate. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I th well, I think that's fair to say, and also that they uh, relax their underwriting standards to a point where uh, a lot of the mortgages that they purchased weren't sound. But in order to understand their role, one really has to get a sense of the scale of Fannie and Freddie. These are two companies that, before the crisis, had an implicit government guarantee. They had been owned by the government and were privatized uh, in the um, late '60s, and they were in they intended to introduce liquidity into the market. How did they do so? By buying mortgages that banks and mortgage companies originated so that they would have free cash to continue originating mortgages. And what Fannie and Freddie would do was quote unquote securitize these mortgages. That is make them into bundles of mortgages, bundles of mortgage-backed assets that they could sell to investors. And the idea was that because you have a diversified portfolio of mortgages, you are able to have a pretty certain idea of what your return is going to be and what the volatility of the asset's going to be. So investors really gobbled these up. Uh, the problem was that what was assumed to be sound a sound package of mortgages turned out not to be because due to political interference, Fannie and Freddie, and given the, the sort of the bottleneck role that Fannie and Freddie played in the housing market, um, they were steadily diluting the uh, the soundness of a lot of these uh, loans and eventually information about the real uh, the real uh, ability to repay of the borrowers who were standing behind those loans transpired and that's when the market turned very suddenly so uh, I feel like I know the answer to this question already but having learned all of these lessons we have dramatically changed how uh, mortgages are treated by GSEs like Fannie and Freddie, and uh, banks now must behave in an appropriate way. Is that right? Well, that would be the hope, Caleb. But uh, of course, in a very, very highly politicized market, and of course, during the crisis, Fannie and Freddie were brought into government conservatorship, meaning they were essentially nationalized. And the government has put up more than $200 billion to bail both of them out. Um, during the crisis, uh, there was a lot of concern about what would happen to the flow of credit and home ownership. And a lot of politicians simply were unwilling to relinquish the role that Fannie and 
Freddie had gained. And of course, politically, it's very beneficial to be able to dictate to entities that play such an enormous role in finance in the United States what they should do. So politicians are very reluctant to relinquish that role. And what's really happened is that we have First of all, what I would describe as the wrong interpretation of what caused the crisis. People will talk about banker greed, they will talk about predatory lending, but that doesn't really explain why we had this sudden and massive credit boom, right? Because greed is something that if it is prevalent, it is always prevalent. It's not something that goes necessarily with the cycle. And secondly, predatory lending, to the extent that it happened, um, was about selling credit products to people that didn't understand them or uh, were misled by the conditions of the loan. That may have been the case in individual cases, but it doesn't explain the escalation of prices across the board and the general decline in lending standards. So we had that wrong interpretation. And the reaction was to institute all manner of new regulations that make it uh, stricter uh, to underwrite a mortgage. And the liability on the lender has been quite dramatically ratcheted up. But in combination with, with that, I think there was an awareness on the part of uh, politicians that when they set up these new regulations, they would be chilling uh, the mortgage market. And mortgages wouldn't be happening that, uh, in fact, were sound. So they combined this with uh, creating a safe harbor, so to speak, to put it in, in simple terms, whereby Fannie and Freddie, so long as they were willing to buy mortgages issued by lenders, the new standards that had been instituted, some part of those, didn't apply. Specifically, one of the regulations that was put in place after the crisis is that if you're a borrower and you take out a mortgage, uh, in order for uh, some of the stricter underwriting requirements not to apply to you, the debt to income ratio on that mortgage, just bear with me for a second, I will explain in a moment, the debt to income ratio must not exceed 43%. The debt to income ratio is the ratio of debt payments that you have to make each month to your gross income. So you will have student loans, credit card loans potentially, and the mortgage. And in some, those may not exceed 43% of income. That is the standard regulation. But um, uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in 2014 exempted Fannie and Freddie purchase mortgages from that limit. Why am I concerned about that? Because in times of financial stress, such as the crisis, the debt to income ratio is an indicator of financial distress. And we can predict on the basis of how high the debt to income ratio is, whether a mortgage will default. So politicians were giving Fannie and Freddie a license to purchase riskier mortgages. And in that way, not only have they continued to maintain a very large role for these very problematic entities that have historically played a harmful role in, in the US financial market, but they were also encouraging the flow of mortgages that perhaps wouldn't be sound. And in good times, no one worries about these things. But when the market turns, that's when we um, when we start to realize that this these sort of quote-unquote flexible standards are in fact um, a dangerous to the borrower and to the taxpayer. What is the role of banks in all of this? Banks uh, and some other uh, financial institutions uh, originate mortgages. That is, for at least some period of time, they're the ones assuming the risks associated with uh, having created this uh, debt instrument. And maybe they pass that on to Fannie and Freddie or uh, they, 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 it gets bundled or securitized and shipped off. And then it's essentially off their books, freeing up cash for them to then uh, issue more loans. Um, but what is the role of banks when it comes to trying to make sure 
that uh, the loans that they are creating are good ones, ones that are sound. And and how have we done anything since the crisis to put banks in a position where they have more skin in the game when it comes to uh, mortgage lending? There's been an attempt to um, create incentives and sometimes to even mandate for banks and other mortgage lenders to hold some of the originations they make, some of the mortgages they make on their books, at least for a period of time. And the idea is that you will encourage uh, banks in that way to have skin in the game. They're the first to lose if they have generally poor underwriting practices. The problem with that regulation, first of all, is that it is quite prescriptive and there's no reason why we would expect the government to know what share of mortgages will create the right incentives. But then secondly, there's some element of selection there. If you look at the characteristics of the typical mortgage that a bank or credit union or mortgage company will hold on its books, um, they're, they're typically higher quality and safer by the usual indicators how much um, the borrower has taken out as a, as a share of the value of the house, uh, how much of their income they have to pay in debt repayments. If you look at those kinds of uh, predictors of default, the mortgages on uh, the originator's books look better than the ones that are sold on. So there's an element of selection there. The problem is that Really, even though a lot of the uh, public narrative understands it otherwise, in fact, banks and other lenders in the first place, the downstream lenders, they're really just takers of whatever conditions Fannie and Freddie and the government set in the market. Because right now, Fannie and Freddie have such a large role and they guarantee uh, most mortgages that... Um, you know, they the banks will issue whatever the government-sponsored entities, Fannie and Freddie, will take. A lot of the other mortgages that are not bought by Fannie and Freddie are also in some way sponsored by the government. So the Veterans Administration guarantees mortgages to veterans, and those in some of their features are even riskier looking than, than others. And then the Federal Housing Administration has a special program for low-income mortgages that also have riskier features, and they insure them. So it's, 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 it's very much a regimented market and one where the government really sets the underwriting rules. So in terms of uh, the response to your question, Caleb, is whatever attempt we make to change the incentives for lenders won't really have much uh, of an impact unless you tackle this issue of the government guarantee and uh, this uh, obsession by politicians to promote home ownership even to people who can't afford it. So with mortgages that qualify for purchase by Fannie and Freddie, those get still receive special treatment? That is, that is to say, uh, mortgages that qualify for purchase by Fannie and Freddie uh, get special dispensation. They are what? Well, it's a bit... It's a bit muddy right now because, of course, Fannie and Freddie are entities owned by the government at the moment. And so the government stands behind Fannie and Freddie. Uh, they, the, the Treasury is right now getting uh, whatever profits Fannie and Freddie make, and they're the ones deciding what happens to them. So right now there's an, there's an explicit government backstop because of the government property. There's an attempt now to um, eventually allow Fannie and Freddie to accumulate enough capital uh, to become private again. And uh, we don't clearly know yet the, the Treasury has yet to come up with a report uh, trying to describe what sort of framework they envisage for them in the future. But right now, the the feature of the market, as far as Fannie and Freddie is concerned, is is has has something that 
wouldn't happen in a competitive market. Namely, when Fannie and Freddie purchase mortgages, they charge a fee for the guarantee. This is known as the G fee. But the G fee is not actually proportional to the individual risk of the mortgage. There's an element of what's called cross-subsidization. Safer mortgages are effectively subsidizing riskier ones. That's something you can get away with if you're a monopolist or an oligopolist because you control the market. But in a competitive market in which people will be offering different terms, if you had very many Fannies and very many Freddies in a private market, you wouldn't really be able to have that cross-subsidization because the less risky people wouldn't be wouldn't see a reason to pay more. So that's a feature that actually right now is making the market sort of work within the very perverse incentives, of course, that I've described. But if we want to move to a more competitive setting, I think we'd have to rethink that kind of structure. And of course, from an economic and even a moral perspective, it's I don't think it's a difficult um, uh, thought to to contemplate that you shouldn't make mortgages that people are unlikely to be able to repay, and you shouldn't force people to cross-subsidize the risk the risk taking by uh, other people. And in fact, if we really want to aid um, home ownership or you know aid um, people have access to the, the financial stability and security, there are much better ways to go about it than to increase the flow of credit or to increase access to credit in an unsound way. So. Final question here. What in recent years, especially since the financial crisis, what how much equity is in the homes that currently have mortgages? That's a great question. I've been struck by this myself. Um, if you look at the quarterly reports that come out uh, of um, mortgages, purchased by Fannie and Freddie, so the vast amount of the retail mortgage market in the United States, the median borrower, that is the borrower at the 50th percentile, is putting down 3% of the value of the house they purchase. There are very many mortgages at the top end where borrowers are putting down even less. And I mentioned the Veterans Administration guaranteed mortgages. For many of those, borrowers put nothing down. So this compares to a historical standard where people used to put 20% of the value of the home down. Now, I don't think that's entirely just government policy. It's also the market has changed because as I say, low interest rates low interest rates mean house prices go up relative to incomes and it's so harder to put down as much as 20%. Uh, but even then, we should be concerned that a lot of borrowers have very little skin in the game. The aggregate indicators on outstanding mortgages are also starting to reach uh, quite sort of telling proportions. On Tuesday, the Wall Street Journal reported that we've gone past the 2008 peak and we now have more than $9.4 trillion worth of outstanding mortgages. Of course, mortgages are by far the largest, by an order of magnitude, the largest consumer credit item in the United States, equivalent to about half of US GDP, just under half of US GDP. Um, so when we look at these measures, and the sort of, I mean, and I hope I've described to you the very many dimensions and features that make this a very problematic market, we should be very concerned, regardless of where the economy goes in the next few quarters. Diego Zuluaga is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us and suggest show topics on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>